We've been looking at areas about how do we live in the way of Jesus in a culture that is just in some ways gone to hell in a handbasket. How do you and I, how do you and I navigate having our citizenship up in heaven, but our current address right down here on earth? And what we've done predominantly is look at certain areas of tension in our society or misunderstanding in our society, like the calling you have on your life and whatever you do as a job. It's, it's even into politics or into marriage. We looked at gender, we looked at ambition, we looked at all those things. And today, I'm gonna to tell you that we're gonna look at a, a kingdom passage that I have never preached since I've been here, and there is a reason for that, because true confessions of a pastor, I have never really been drawn to this passage at all. I just hadn't, I hadn't had any motivation to get in there. I myself had misunderstood the front part of it to such an extent that in many ways, I didn't understand the whole thing. And the good news of that is, I've enjoyed digging into this passage as much as I have in any passage in at least five years. I mean, it was like the light bulb going on over and over and over again. God began to do a work in my heart looking at this passage this week. Uh, it has been a great, great joy just to be able to say, you know what, I can spend 20 hours and get in there. Because the reason is, even if you're new to Bible study, you might have seen this on a home. You might have this on crochet or needlepoint or something. Maybe you've just kind of heard it bantered around. But as I said, even if you've heard it, I promise you there's parts of this that you have misunderstood. And the reason is pretty obvious. There's probably three reasons before we jump into Matthew 5. First one is simply the key word in here is a word we don't use very often. It's the word blessed, blessed. Now the Greek word is makarios, but even then it's a hard word to translate. And then in our English language, we don't, when's the last time you said, hey, bless you? You know, we say it, we either say it kind of as a veneer. If somebody comes, how you doing? Well, I'm blessed and highly favored. Well, it doesn't look like it is based on your Facebook page. Looks like your whole world's falling apart. So it's kind of almost like a little bit of a fake thing. Uh, sometimes we do it um, if somebody sneezes. Somebody sneezes and you say what? God bless you, which by the way, that came from like the bubonic plague years and years and years ago where the Pope was like, you know what? Uh, if you sneeze, you're gonna give somebody the bubonic plague. So he taught the people to basically pray a little prayer, God bless you, so you don't get the bubonic plague. So quick, not to be a killjoy, but don't ever say that to me. So that's one of them. Or, or some of you are actually not from the South and you've moved here from California or the Midwest and Chicago and we're glad you're here. But just so you understand here in the South, if somebody says, uh, bless your heart, they're cussing you. That's what they're doing. They're not, they're not helping you, they're cussing you. Because when you say bless your heart here in the South, what we mean is, man, you are such an idiot. That is, you, you know, bless your heart, you, your mama didn't raise you right. That's what we're really saying. So in some ways, when you say bless, that's part of the whole misunderstanding. And also some of the time is some of your translations or at least some of the paraphrase translations translate this, the word happy, happy. Now that's not wrong, it's just not complete, all right? Because the way we use happy is based on the happenings that we have. And so this word blessing is so much, much, much deeper and better than just the word, just the word happy. Which, by the way, if you think about happy, I mean, that's built into us as a country. Is it? I mean, us as a country, everything is about, I'm going to have the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And by the way, that's not even that going that well for us. I looked at a survey. Do you know we rank 19th as a country as far as how happy we are as citizens? 19th. Places like the Netherlands are in front of us. Iceland is in front of us. How in the world is Iceland in front of us? 
when it comes to happiness. So the whole thing isn't going that well. The good news is what you're going to see in this, Jesus is for your joy. Jesus is for your satisfaction. He is for your, it's almost like to be translated congratulations. One other, one other introductory note. This actually will help you understand the whole Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus. It starts in Matthew 5 and ends at the end of chapter 7. But this is the start of the whole thing. And sometimes the, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not careful, all you do is sort of take the Old Testament law that you and I could not keep, all the 613 commands that you could not keep, and then we overlay that onto the Sermon on the Mount, which has a lot of new stuff that Jesus takes the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, and he like raises the bar even higher. So it says like, you know, he's like, you've heard it said, do not murder. Jesus is like, but I say if you're even angry in your heart, which means you can't even drive down I-26 without like breaking the Sermon on the Mount. So part of you almost wants to just like toss in the towel. I can't do it. I don't have what it takes, which believe it or not is exactly, exactly what the point is. You don't have what it takes. You can't pull this off all by yourself. So here's what I want you to do. Instead of looking at the Beatitudes specifically or the Sermon on the Mount in general, it's just a checklist to say I'm a good Christian or I'm a good old Christian boy, or I'm a good old Christian girl. Look at this as evidence of a gospel-infused, gospel-saturated life, one that has run into the freight train of the grace of God found in the gospel, and then this is a journey God takes you on. Because here's what you're gonna see. When you look at the Beatitudes, sometimes, sometimes people look at this as like eight separate virtues, you know, meekness and, and, and poverty of soul and all this, and you look at it that way and you're gonna miss it. I heard one commentator, and it's not wrong, but it's just confusing. He said, the Beatitudes are like, the Beatitudes are like a stained glass and it's got eight different pieces, but you put them together in a stained glass and it's a beautiful picture. That's not incorrect, but more correctly is to look at the Beatitudes in a more linear fashion, almost like steps that you take. Because what you're going to see is contextually, Jesus is beginning his ministry. If you go back to chapter four, and if you remember, the chapter divisions are not in the original writings. You understand that? They're put there later so you and I can find stuff in here. So it goes from chapter four, what we know is chapter four, to chapter five, and there is no chapter break. And in chapter four, he is kicking off, he is launching his public ministry. And the way he launches it, by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. In other words, I'm the king I'm ushering in a brand new kingdom. And the whole thing he's gonna talk about is how does the gospel and discipleship and all of that, all of that work. So here's the last story and then we're gonna be in verse one. For the Beatitudes, a, a number of months ago, I think I told you about uh, a habit and I'm a novice hunter. I'm a growing hunter, if you will. But I'm a, so I'm learning stuff all the time. So about a year ago, I was in the eastern part of the state with some guys and we went bear hunting. Now, three of us had guns and one guy had a bow and he was like the serious hunter. And so it's almost at the end of the last evening. So you've got maybe 20 minutes of daylight left. We're, we're getting everybody, going and collecting everybody. And then we get to the last guy, the bow hunter. And as we get there, we find out he had shot a bear a through and through, meaning he shot the arrow, he saw it go through the bear, and then the bear ran off. Now, loved ones, 
Eastern part of the state is what they call thick, all right? It's thick. You've got palmetto, underbrush, all this stuff. 30 minutes later, all of a sudden, I find myself with a bunch of guys in the woods, in darkness, looking for an injured bear. And I'm like, this cannot, this can't, we're smarter than this. I mean, the total IQ of this group has got to know this is a bad idea because you're trying to figure out where the bear went. But here's what you do. You start tying these little ribbons or toilet paper if you don't want to go get them at Sportsman's Warehouse or something, and you tie these behind you so you know you know where you've been. You also can say, okay, if I know where I've been, I know where I am, and then it helps you also understand where you're going. In the Beatitudes, that's what I want you to think about. The Beatitudes, and there's eight of them. I want you to think wherever you are on your journey with God, you're going to see all right, am I here? If I'm here, then that's where, I, that's where I'm going to be going. That's where I, some of you are like, that's where I've been. That's what happened to me this week. I was like, that's what was going on. And at the time, I didn't recognize it. So these are gonna think about these as stepping stones. So almost think about these as like step one, step two, step three, et cetera, et cetera. So Matthew 5, verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, sitting down was what an authoritative teacher would do back in those days. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, real quickly, it's unclear whether or not these are the, he's just brought some disciples on. So is this a term for the 12? Those aren't really organized till about chapter 10 of Matthew. Or is this more of a generic thing about people who have followed, and I'll come back to that, over, this, over these recent days? And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying. So context before we do step one, the crowds, who is that? Go back to chapter four and Jesus's crowds were booming. They were getting bigger and bigger as he preached and as he did miracles. This is the start of his ministry. He is preaching and everybody is coming out to listen to this guy and to watch this guy heal. But more than the healing, Chapter four, verse 17 is what he said. Now, this is the part that most people don't even understand. If you were to say, what were the first words what Jesus said? Or what was Jesus's initial message? Somebody might say, hey, it was love or it was, it was don't judge or whatever. What you and I need to remind ourselves of is right out of Jesus's own mouth at the start of his message and at the start of his ministry, here's what he said. 417 says, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Verse 23, he says he went about proclaiming the gospel, which just means good news, of the kingdom. So he is, he is continuing the storyline of the whole Bible. Now, if you're new to Bible study, one of the things we talk about all the time is the way you look at the Bible is understanding the whole Bible is about Jesus. That you go over to like Genesis chapter three and it talks about prophesying a serpent crusher. Then you go into the book of Exodus and it talks about a Passover lamb. Then you go into the book of Leviticus and it institutes all this sacrificial system, which was basically, if you sin, this is what it costs. But in doing that, he's also introducing to his people the whole idea of substitution, of substitution, that somebody else can pay. In that case, it was an animal. They can actually pay for your sin. And then you go on and you have like all the kings and the way they failed and the way they failed was like, this was not the permanent king. This is not a great king. There's a king coming and he's not going to fail. And then you get into the book of Psalms and you see all these, these illusions and shadows and prophecies and some are clearer than others. 
You go to like Psalm 22 and it's like a blow by blow account of the whole crucifixion scene. And then you get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Malachi, and it says, guess what? There, the son is coming and he has a son of righteousness is coming with healing in his wings. And then God goes quiet for 400 years and then John the Baptist comes out and says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, this is the narrative. He's like, all that stuff that you've learned, the kingdom of God is right now. I'm the king of the kingdom. Now understand he is talking about He's talking to his immediate audience are Jewish people. Matthew's whole gospel is to Jewish people and saying, guess what? I want to make clear that you know Jesus is that long-anticipated Messiah. And by the way, he's also drawing a parallel to the hero of the Jewish people, Moses. He's like, just like Moses went up on the mountain and got the law of God and got the Ten Commandments and then came and spoke to the people, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's like, listen, I'm, gonna, I'm going up on the mountain and now I'm going to speak for I'm going to speak for God. So if you're ready, this is the time where you're like, okay, this is, this is what, this is what kingdom discipleship looks like. This is what kingdom discipleship looks like. Cause what he's going to say again is whether it be from money to marriage to whatever, this is what a gospel infected disciple looks like. This is a blessed life, a satisfied life. It blessed could almost be translated. Congratulations. And then he gives it. So you ready? Okay, it's gonna go quick. It's gonna go quick. You got eight points, eight steps, and they're just right out of the text. I'm just, you're like, that's the least creative sermon you've ever preached. They're not even alliterated. Well, it's just right out of the text. So text number one, or step number one. Step number one out of verse three is just put down. Step one is poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Verse three says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor. There's seven words you could use for the word poor in the Greek language, and he uses the one that is the most destitute, the most filled with poverty, and he's not talking about their economic condition, although that was to some degree his audience at the time. He's talking about soul poverty. He's talking about blessed are the poor in their spirit, soul level poverty. It's you realizing you are spiritually bankrupt at the core level. He's starting off by saying, before you can come into the kingdom, you've got to come to the point to say, I don't have what it takes to be right with God. I'm not a mistaker in need of a life coach. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And right off the bat, he's saying, blessed is the one who realizes he does not have what it takes and he is bankrupt at the soul level. That is the start of God rescuing you. Think about it this way. You could think of, Probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. In the story of the prodigal son, if you don't know it, the recap, the cliff note version is basically this. You got a guy, he goes to his dad. He's like, dad, I want all my inheritance now. In other words, I don't care about you. I don't care about this family. All I care about that is, is that money. So give me the money. I'm going to treat you as if you are dead. Amazingly, the dad gives him the money, gives him the inheritance. The son goes off and spends it on reckless or prodigal living, if you will. Spends it everywhere. And then after he's, all, after he's all run out of his money, he finds himself bankrupt. He is bankrupt. He has nothing. So he hires himself out and he starts working in a pig farm, which is the lowest of the low if you're a Jewish boy. But the part you got to understand about spiritual bankruptcy is the signs. And there's a part in Luke 15, you can read it sometime. There's a part in Luke 15 when all this stuff, circumstances, all this stuff that God has jerked the rug out from under him, 
all this stuff, all this sin was turning like gravel into his mouth, there's a little phrase in there and it simply says, and he came to his senses. And he came to his senses. In other words, here's this guy and there's this moment where God unveils all the cloudiness and he's like, what am I doing here? What am I, what am I doing here? And then he actually says, the people working for my dad, even though I'm his son, they got more than I do. The very next verse says, and so he got up and he went to his father. But the start of it was, and he came to his senses. Which by the way, I know we've got some parents and grandparents in here and you've got a prodigal and it breaks your heart. And sometimes you don't know how to pray. Believe me, I've been there. This is the part of what you pray. You pray Luke 15, that your prodigal daughter or your prodigal son, at some point, that God would lift the veil from their eyes, that the sin that they're chasing after would turn like gravel in their mouth and that God would bring them to their senses. That's poverty of spirit. So look at number two. Step number two is mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, I'm not trying to bash your favorite author, and I'm not trying to have a completely new paradigm on the Beatitudes. All I'm telling you is it's pretty clear he's not saying, happy are you when you cry. I mean, that, that can't, that's not it. Happy are you when you cry, that makes no sense. I'm so sad, I'm so crying, I'm happy. No, that doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense at all. But when God does show you your spiritual bankruptcy, when he shows you that you are spiritually destitute, you do begin to mourn over your sin and your sinfulness. When you and I get the picture of who God is and how rebellious we are and how much God loves you and what it cost Jesus on the cross, which again, that's part of what Good Friday is. We want to go to the cross and we want to sit there. And we want to mourn so that when the empty tomb comes around, the celebration is even better. This is called the idea of mourning. It's what I felt as a 17-year-old way back in Wichita Falls, Texas, when a basketball coach by the name of Terry Richter went through the gospel, even though I'd heard it umpteen times from my brother, what I had for the first time was mourning over my sin. I was grieved over the fact that I had a God who loved me and I had spit in his face and spit in his message and spit in his messengers for at least two years. And there I was and these people still loved me and still prayed for me and God just slammed me down to the mat and it's like, listen, that was your sin that I died for on the cross. That's mourning. That's grieving over your sin. That's called conviction. And so there in that office as a 17-year-old in North Texas, that's what I was like, I need you. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That's conviction. And it says they will be comforted. That's an awesome little word. That word that's used for comforted there is the verb form of the noun form that is used of the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. Like when you look over to John 14, John 16, and he's called the comforter, the encourager, or whatever your translation is saying, that's the word. It's para kaleho. It means called alongside to help. Para's alongside, kaleo is called. It's somebody who calls alongside and is like, listen, 
Yes, your sin is bad, but Jesus died for that sin. And so you go from wallowing in your sin to looking at the grace that God is offering you. That's the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then number three, step three is meekness. It's meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't understand the word meek. What do you think of when you hear the word meek? That rhymes with meek. Weak. That's what we think. Meek means weak. And that would be a mistake. Because meekness does not mean weakness. It's actually the word that is oftentimes used for this massive, powerful horse that is eventually broken by the trainer. That finally, that horse is like, it's kind of like the Carrie Underwood. Jesus, take the wheel. That's what it is. It's like, I am tired of going my own way. And he yields himself to the master. I believe this would describe the moment of salvation. This is when you become a disciple of Jesus. This is biblical belief. This is what the whole Bible talks about when it talks about repentance. Blessed are you when you realize that you are headed in the wrong direction and you surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And where this just hit home so much is, this is contextually so much easier to understand based on chapter four, when that's the way Jesus starts off. Jesus' first message is repent. Repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It means I'm gonna change my mind, I'm gonna change my heart, and then I'm going a different direction. That's biblical belief. Biblical belief is not you praying a little prayer. Biblical belief is not saying even getting in the water. Biblical belief is a transfer of ownership. It is a transfer of control. Just like the horse is like, I'm not the boss of me anymore. You are telling the Lord God who made you and paid for you, I'm not the boss of me anymore. The way we talk about it is we call it surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. And I told you last week, the biggest fear, without a doubt, the biggest fear that I have is that God would do all these great works and birth all these campuses, and you would sit here for 10, 12, 15 years listening to the Bible, and you go into connect group and doing all that stuff and know so much about Jesus but not know Jesus. That scares me to death. Especially when you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you got all these people that have these awesome church resumes, and he's like, I didn't even know you. I didn't even know you. So the question you gotta ask before you get to the next one is, do I know Jesus? Have I ever surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Have I ever actually said, you know what, I'm not the boss of me anymore. I believe what you did on that cross somehow, some way counted for me. I still got some questions. I still got some, some doubts even that I'm wrestling with. But when you said it is finished, somehow that counted for me. And so right now I am transferring the reins of my life over to you. Be my savior, be my Lord, I'm repenting. I am changing directions. And with your eyes open and your head up, you can do that as you, right there. We're not done with the sermon yet. I'm just telling you right now. If you're like, I'm not sure I've ever done that. I'm not really sure I've ever done that. I've been going to church here a long time, but I'm not really sure I've ever ever done that. If you're at the early Arden service, what she saw, she saw a 74-year-old lady who heard the gospel in a nursing home or an assisted living home, and she comes to Christ this week and she gets baptized two days later. That's awesome. Question is, have you done that? Have you ever surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Have you ever said, you know what? What you did on that cross counted for me. Would you come in here and be my Lord and Savior? Heads up, eyes open. Right there, you just tell him. 
You just tell them in your own mind, I surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Will you come and save me? I am transferring ownership over to you. You made me, you paid for me, you bought me, you loved me, and I'm asking you to please save me. That's the start. That's the start. You're now what is called a follower of Jesus. We'd love to know that, by the way. Just easiest way to do it, and I feel like I use car salesmen when I do this, but it's the easiest way. Just text the word follow to 28282. It's like, I just prayed to receive Christ. Maybe you're sitting in a coffee shop in Cleveland or something, and uh, somebody in Cleveland in the coffee shop freaked out right there, just so you know. But if you would just, if you would just, uh, if you would just let us know, we will take it from there. But that's, that's, that's step three. All right, go to the next one. All right, step four. Step four, hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why, 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 why to do that? For they will be satisfied. All right, put on your, put on your big boy theological pants for just a second, okay? Um, this is super important, and I'm gonna say it about six different ways because it is key, and we say it about six different ways all the time. We say identity leads to activity. We say belief leads to behavior, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's what I want you to understand. The word for righteousness here just simply means a right standing with God. That's what it means. Blessed are those who hunger for a right standing with God. Why, comma, for they will be satisfied. They will be full. They will be content. They will, they will, they will feel like they have an abundance. So here's... When you look at, there's a pattern that you see, and it's oftentimes even shown in the, the epistles, which are those letters on the back. Those are letters to local churches in those early churches, and you'll see this in like the book of Ephesians, you'll see this in the book of Colossians, and here's what you see. You'll see that the writer will spend, like in Ephesians, he'll spend three chapters talking about all that Jesus has done. The fact that it's not your righteousness, it's Jesus's righteousness imputed or given to you when you repent and trust Christ. So all of Jesus's, we call it Jesus's resume, all his perfection, all his righteousness. It's not just that he takes your sin away, that he takes his righteousness and all of a sudden that's counted for you. That's counted for you. So he spends three chapters on that, talking about how you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but then he's like, but by grace you have been saved. And he just goes on. It talks about you've been brought close, you're part of God's household, all those amazing things. And then after he spends half the book on that, only then does he start challenging the activity. And the way he does it in chapter four, he's like, okay, now you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that has called you. Because here's what happens is if you flip those around, you end up with legalism. Legalism says, I'm going to work my way to impress God, and I'm going to have activity that leads to my identity. That's religion, but the gospel says God changes my identity, who I am, and then he changes what I do. So he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which by the way, that's why we're talking, as I said last week, I said a hundred times, that's why I try to push in on your main core identity it's not your past, it's not your divorce, it's not the worst moment of your life, and it's also not the best moment of your life. If you're in Christ, the biggest thing that happened to you is you came to faith in Christ. It's not your worst mistake, it's not spring break. And when you and I get that, then it changes. Do understand this, that it's not cheap grace because a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. If you're kind of sitting there going, well, man, I prayed that prayer and I can live any way I want to, you've never been hit with the freight train of the grace of God. Because they're like, you know what? We'll know you're a disciple, what? By the fruit 
that you have. So here's what it is. Positional righteousness, what Jesus does for you, eventually leads to, I'm just gonna call it practical righteousness. This is gonna, actually this had a huge lifespan, but I always, when I think of this, I always think of Mrs. Pac-Man. I mean, Mrs. Pac-Man probably lasted five generations in its concept, I mean, just waka, waka, waka. and she's always, she's like eating all those dots and then every once in a while she would get like a fruit and it would increase your score. What you wanna understand, and just kind of the easiest way to think of it this way, is your practical righteousness, the stuff you do, has to feed on your positional righteousness to stay healthy. So you understand what Jesus did for you, and in the aftermath of that, in the gratitude of that, then you do things that fan, fan into a flame your love for Jesus. Puritans would call this vivification. Vivification, viv, just comes from life. What breathes life into your relationship with Jesus as a disciple? Now, some of it's common for everybody. I mean, there's some stuff that's like bare bones for everybody. Obviously, you gotta get in the word. The word is, the word fans and gives life to your walk. Praise does the same thing. Not just the three songs or four songs we do on a Sunday morning, but that's why every once in a while it is really healthy for you to like flip off talk radio, all right, flip off whatever you know, dance music you got and whatever, and put on some awesome praise music because you're eventually getting those lyrical hooks into your mind. The people of God, that's another one we all have to have as well. We get sharpened with each other. But then there's a few things that you might have that somebody else doesn't have. For some of you, like, it really does me great to go take a hike into the Western North Carolina waterfalls and you, you end up being like the psalmist that says, man, when I look at the stars in the sky and the moons you've put in place, what is man that you even think of me? I mean, listen, brothers and sisters, we ought to be able to do that so much easier than people in Wichita Falls, all right? Wichita Falls, there's like four trees and the rest of it is desert. We live in Narnia, okay? We live in a place where it ought to be so easy to go out and go, man, Look at God, look what God does. That's vivification. So if you don't do it that way, okay, can I be blunt? That's why some of you are so dissatisfied. Seriously, because you don't hunger for any of that stuff. That's why you're not satisfied. Now we talked about it before and there's nothing wrong with some of that stuff, okay? There's nothing wrong with you know, whether it be status or success or romantic, you know, relationships or whatever, those are all, that's part of life. But if we expect those things to fully and finally satisfy us, it's like eating Snickers all day long and thinking, I'm going to feel awesome. I'm going to feel awesome. No, it's going to give you a sugar high. It's going to give you some other stuff. But if that's all you do, you're not going to be satisfied. So the only thing I could think of with that is like that. We're way away from Thanksgiving meal, but this happens every Thanksgiving. I don't know if you have dinner or lunch or whatever. We usually kind of have, I don't know, winter. We kind of have like that two o'clock, 2.30 kind of deal. But you know what? And when you get full, when you get through with Thanksgiving dinner, don't you sometimes go, I will never eat again. Just never gonna, never gonna be hungry again. I'm just not gonna eat till third. You know, I'm not gonna eat for a week. And then what, by like 6.30, you're like looking in the fridge. Just what is in here? Maybe some leftovers or something. All right, that's what it's like when we don't just, what, do you, what is God asking you to do to fan into a flame what he's done? And by the way, this is where it starts to get, it goes from vertical and it starts to have some horizontal elements too. Look at step five. Step five is mercy. Verse seven, 
Blessed are the merciful. Congratulations, in a sense, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's pretty easy to understand. You get shown mercy. The gospel shows you how much mercy and grace and forgiveness you've been given. And then he's like, if that's the case, then guess what? Then that is gonna show in the way that you show mercy and grace to other people. Jesus actually tells a story about a guy that gets forgiven. The word forgive just means to release from a debt. It doesn't mean that you trust. It doesn't mean you don't have any boundaries. It doesn't mean you put yourself in a harmful situation again. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. What it literally means is to release this person from a debt, saying that person no longer owes me at all. They don't owe me that. They don't owe me an apology. They just, they don't, they don't owe me. They don't have to come knock at my door. That's what forgiveness is. And Jesus tells a story. There's this one guy that got like forgiven just like millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he's like, you would think that guy, that guy would then go out and be so gracious and benevolent to other people. But Jesus tells a story, a parable, and says that guy who just got forgiven millions and millions of dollars goes out and looks for a guy that owes him like a nickel and sits there and throws him into jail until he can repay. Now, my challenge to you would be, who is it that has offended you that you have held on to, and maybe today, this is not even the message, but maybe today it's like, I'm gonna release that thing today. I'm gonna forgive that daughter who never calls. I'm gonna forgive that neighbor who did X, Y, and Z. And again, I'm not saying you pretend it didn't happen. I'm not saying you rationalize it. We've taught on forgiveness 10 times. What I am saying is you release the debt and you think you're doing it for them. You need to understand you're doing it for the glory of God and the good of your own soul. Because what's happened is you're taking all that poison that's been boiling in you, sometimes for years, and you're like, you know what? God's shown me grace, I'm showing them grace. God showed me mercy, I show them mercy. Which, parenthetically, you understand that's how the, t the original Ten Commandments are structured as well, right? You understand that the Ten Commandments are structured that way. The first four are vertical about your relationship with God and the next six are horizontal about your relationship with other people. Meaning that when you get the vertical right, it affects the horizontal. It affects your marriage, it affects your neighboring, it affects your parenting, it affects all of that. All right, number six, step six, pure in heart, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is a little bit of a challenge. Because the Bible does teach that when you come to Christ, when you become a disciple, one of the things that happens is God gives you a new heart. Ezekiel says that when you come to Christ, God gives you a brand new heart. He does a bunch of new stuff for you. You're a new creation. He puts a new song in your mouth. He gives you a new heart. The one thing that you don't see him giving when you come to faith in Christ is he does not give you a new mind. He doesn't give you a new mind. And heart and mind are used not synonymously, but sometimes interchangeably in the Bible. That It's harder to tell which one. The mind affects the heart and the heart affects the mind. And so that's why Romans 12 says, how do you change? How do you change as a person? But by the transforming or the renewal of the noose, the mind right up here. Because you get these patterns of thinking that your enemy will take and to, and to totally take all the blessedness away from your Christian life. Bad thinking, stinking thinking. That's why a lot of times you respond that way to your spouse. That's sometimes the way that you act at your work. It's because there have been patterns of thinking and the part of sanctification or discipleship is you taking truth and replacing those lies. 
And if you've had them for a long time, you can stay there. I might've told you this about a year ago, but one of the cool things about, one of the many cool things about my bride is I never know what house I'm gonna see when I come home. Because when I come home, the furniture could be changed, everything could be changed, it could, it could be awesome. So it keeps things kind of cool and, you know, <laughs> unpredictable, right? So I think I was, out of, I was out of town, I think I was out of town for almost the entire week. And so she like changed everything in the kitchen. And we used to have the silverware uh, uh, I'm getting it blank now. No, it's now under the car. It used to be over there on the right-hand side on the cabinets, and then somehow it's now underneath the coffee maker on the left-hand side. It was probably a year ago when she did that. Did you know at least once every couple of weeks, just off of habit, I will go to the wrong drawer, which now have sandwich bags and straws and no silverware, and I get there, I'm like, ah, not that drawer, this drawer. That's where it used to be this is where this stuff is now. That is exactly the way God grows you as a Christian. You grew up and the pattern was saying, this is where you go for satisfaction. Or this is where you go when you're angry or this is where you go. And what happens is God wants to go, no, no, not that drawer anymore. That's not where you're going to find it. You're going to find it over here. So the idea is how do I renew my mind over and over and over again? That's why we teach the Bible. That's what connect groups. That's why we do all of that stuff. All right, two more. We've got peacemakers. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. By the way, it doesn't say peacekeepers. It doesn't. Peacekeeper, like, oh, let's just everybody get along. That's not what he's saying. He says peacemaker. For they shall be called sons of God. Now be clear, he's not saying if you're a peace, peacemaker, you become a Christian. Sons of God... Like for example, James and John were called sons of thunder. In other words, you're looking, that's, that's, that's the way they looked, that's the way they acted. But what it's saying now is if you're about the business of bringing people peace, you're starting to look like God, which makes the most sense when you think about why did Jesus come and kick off his ministry? To bring people who were far from God and not at peace with God into peace with God. Into peace with God. Romans 5. Since we've justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So people around you, they are not at peace with God, no matter how awesome they act. If they don't know Christ, they're not at peace with God, just like you weren't, just like you were not. And so what this really means is the idea of, listen, this is what Jesus did. You and I look most like Jesus when we help people get reconciled with God through Jesus. It's, I think it was Tebow when he was here, the first thing, he, or one of the things that he said that you guys loved is the idea is like, once God rescues you, he then puts you on the rescue team. All right, I'm still, I stole that 10 times over. When he said that, I'm like, we're gonna use that a lot. Once you are rescued and you get, you get rescued, you get put in the boat, guess what? Now you're part of the rescue team. I gotta help get some other people in the boat as well. And so um, here's the last one, and it kind of ends, you're like, man, this is kind of a downer to end on this one. Why did Jesus end this way? This is reality. Here's what he said in verse 10. And the eighth step, if you will, is persecuted. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted, he, for righteousness sake. A lot of this stuff on Twitter that is called persecution, is not persecution. It's just you acting like a jerk. That's what it is. It's not saying persecution. It said, what, for righteousness sake. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives some commentary on it in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. And this is key, falsely, meaning it's not true. And why do they do it? On my account. He says, rejoice and be glad. Now, if that was a period, if that was a period not a comma, you'd be like, what? If you get beat up and spit on and fired and all that stuff, you rejoice and be glad over that? that I don't, you're speaking in parables again, Jesus. But he gives the reasoning. The reasoning is, for your reward is great in heaven. He's like, this is not all there is. This 65, 75, 85 years you and I have, I meant to bring out a big old rope, you know, and if I had a big rope and I had like a tiny little thing at the very, at the, at the very start of it, that's like our 85 years. And he's saying, that's your 85 years, but think about this eternity that is out here. He said, if you look so much like me, people are treating you like they treated me. He's saying, that is indicative of you've got a massive reward waiting for you. So the question you and I have to ask, though, we have to ask ourselves the question, do I look enough like Jesus to be treated like Jesus? When is the last time? Because a lot of times we think everybody loves Jesus. Obviously not true. So the question would be this. When is the last time somebody treated you like they treated Jesus? He's saying, remember, this is not your home. This is not your permanent kingdom. If there's never any pushback, if you're never going against the grain, if you're never going against the wind, you need to check what team you are on. You really do. If I haven't had any pushback at all in work and family and anything, that's why that Sermon on the Mount ends when he says this. This, is, this, this ought to scare us. He ends this whole sermon in chapter seven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven and then he gives them a resume and they did some like grade A stuff. It's, he's saying, listen, wake up. Not everybody, it's like, there's gonna be a lot of people, a lot of church people. The description is, there's gonna be a lot of church people, a lot of surprise church people that don't get to heaven. He's like, don't be like that, don't be like that. So again, which team are you on? Let me give you two things about that. Did the people around you know you're a Christ follower, if you are? Did they know you're a Christ follower? Are you a secret agent? Or do they know who you are? I'm not saying perfection, but they're saying there's been a change in direction in that sister's life. Do they know that? Number two, super simple. Have you taken the easy step to put the flag in the ground through baptism? Through baptism. You're like, well, I'm not sure about baptism and I don't wanna get my hair wet and I'm waiting till late baptism and whatever. Every baptism you see in the book of Acts Every baptism you see in the book of Acts is somewhat spontaneous in nature. There's nothing wrong with a baptism class and nothing wrong waiting for a couple of weeks until grandma comes into town from Ohio or whatever. But if you've come to faith in Christ and not followed it by getting into the tank, you are going against the basic first step of being a public disciple. Matter of fact, that's what some of you need to do. Some of you, the, the most spiritual thing you can do is take, take out that little phone and just text the word baptism to 28282. Heck, some of you ought to just jump in the tank at your campus right now and say, you know what? This is the way we're gonna end the service. We're just gonna jump in the tank. So here's what we're gonna do. We always respond to the gospel. We're gonna respond by 
what we say, we're like, we're gonna come and pray. Some of you wanna come pray for a prodigal. Some of you wanna say thank you. Some of you want to uh, come and pray for somebody you're gonna invite at Easter. That'd be awesome. And then we're gonna sing. All right, we're gonna sing as well. There's a great song. You actually sang it earlier. We'll do a slightly different version, but I love this song. God's call in your life might be to, hey, I'm going to sing about the goodness of God. All of my life, he has been faithful. All of my life, he has been good. And so you're telling him, with the breath that I've got this morning, you got me up with one less hour's sleep. With every, you fed me, you, you fed me duck donuts. You've been such a good God. And you were just gonna thank him for that. And so here's what we're gonna do. Uh, why don't you stand to your feet at all the campuses and at Arden as well. I'm gonna pray. And then we are going to respond by uh, singing, uh, coming to pray or uh, bringing or texting in whatever the Lord has led you to do. Father, thanks for, uh, thanks for today. Thanks for the hospitality that a bunch of our folks uh, showed. God, thanks for the duck donut people that stayed up all night long so that we could uh, enjoy a little taste and just a little bit of your goodness just walking into church this morning. We are spoiled and thank you. And so our prayer is over the next three or four minutes, we would express gratitude to you. We would cry out to you for people we love. You would fill us with courage to open our mouths and invite and share. We would speak to you and ask for you to intervene on the, on the lives of some prodigal daughters and some prodigal sons, and that you would hear our voice to say, we believe that you are a good, good God, and we wanna tell you about it for a few minutes. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.